0: Hello and welcome to Contact High. Today's Shabbat replay is from our February 4th Saturday morning service. Rabbi Lizzie welcomed friends and family of B'mitzvah Julius. Shared some updates on what to expect from Mishkan in February. Wished us all a happy tubish Bishvat, the birthday of the trees, and then delivered a powerful sermon connecting the story of the first person in the Torah to gingerly dip a toe into the sea of reeds with other brave pioneers in the long history of liberation. Take it away, Rabbi. It's
1: not messing around. <laughs> we can take a seat. First of all, for, for everybody who's here for the first time back in a long time, I just want to say welcome. We The, the Pinkert family was actually instrumental in the early creation of Mishkan. Um, I don't know where Adam went, but Adam sat at my very small kitchen table at the first apartment I lived in in Chicago. Um, in the board that wasn't a real board because, of course, we were a fiscal sponsee of another synagogue, but we pretended we were a board um, until we had a real board. And uh, so, just to say, like, it's it's a very cool thing to watch something that you kind of dream and build in small uh, small bits and pieces into like into something that runs on its own. I mean, not totally on its own. Like here, we still are, um, but. But, uh, you know, looks and walks and talks like a real organization, um, most days. Um, so anyway, it's really, it's a, it's a blessing to have everybody here and, um, we have a lot going on that's not happening on, you know, Saturday mornings. Though next Friday night we're on for Shabbat, um, and actually um, we're uh, observing and lifting up. It's February is a lot of different kinds of months. It's Black History Month. It's Jewish Disability and Awareness, Jewish Disability and Inclusion Awareness Month as well. And so next Friday night we're having a speaker from the community speaking about that. One of our leaders in our Disability and Chronic Illness online small group, um, so she'll be speaking on Friday night, and actually on the 24th of February, we have all of our friends from Lawndale Christian Community Church, who we went and visited over the summer, so they are coming to celebrate Friday night with us, um, and Pastor Jonathan Brooks will be speaking, and it'll be a nice night, um, and probably a big night, and like, you are all invited, um, you don't have to just wait until Simone's Bat Mitzvah to come back, um. We have classes that are happening and starting soon um, and just a, and a lot going on in the community. Rachel, has, did your Friday night dinner happen or is it next week? How did it go? Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. If people who live in the suburbs are interested in a little bit of Friday night learning, talk to Rachel in the back. Um, okay. Is there anything else to... All right. Great. All right. Um, So a little bit more Torah before we wrap our service today. Um, Michael Pollan, who many of you may know, the writer on everything from how to eat to how to change your mind through psychedelics, um, wrote a short piece in 2008, shortly after Al Gore had put out his first big film, An Inconvenient Truth. Remember that one? And so the piece by Michael Pollan is called Why Bother? And he writes, he, he begins it this way. I don't know about you, but for me, the most upsetting moment in An Inconvenient Truth came long after Al Gore scared the he- uh, heck out of me, constructing an utterly convincing case that the survival of life on Earth as we know it is threatened by climate change. No, the really dark moment came during the closing credits when we are asked to change our light bulbs. That's when it got really depressing, he writes. The immense disproportion between the magnitude of the problem Gore had described and the puniness of what he was asking us to do about it was just about enough to sink your heart. So happy tubishvat every day. Happy Tubeshvat, everybody. Happy birthday of the trees. Um, I'm glad that you spoke about this earlier, Julius. So this article has haunted me ever since I read it because it's a nagging feeling I recognize, right even as i do little things like composting my banana peels and my eggshells and buy led light bulbs and i wonder you know if all of us carry this around in one way or another as we look at the state of the world around us and what you know whether it's climate change or racial justice or peace in the middle east and just observing the immense disproportion between the magnitude of the problem and the puniness of what each one of us can do in our own limited sphere of influence, you know, within ourselves, our home, our family, our community. So thank God for Torah. Thank God for this week's Parsha, which is just what this tired, somewhat cynical, but nonetheless hopeful person needed this weekend against the backdrop of a world that can feel so often just so overwhelming and like the prospect of doing anything meaningful can feel so remote. So Rabbi Dina told us earlier about, I'm pointing this way. I think she's in the other room with the kids. Rabbi Dina um, told us earlier about a character in the Torah named Nachshon. Made famous, not in the Torah itself, but in a midrash, about he was the first guy, being the first guy to jump into the sea when everyone else was standing on the shore. Now, among Julius's very good questions was not, why were all of the Israelites standing on the shore? Why weren't they plunging headlong into the sea? Like, hello, you know, it's happening. The exodus is in process, go. But no, the Torah says they stood on on the sidelines. And so Rabbi Meir in one midrash says, well, here's why they were standing on the sides. They were arguing about who got to go in first. We're arguing, all the tribes were arguing, we get to go in first. No, we get to go in first. And I I think that's sort of a fun vision, you know, a society on the cusp of a major step forward and everyone is eager to be the first to make that big change. But Rabbi Judah says, are you kidding? That's never how it happens. (laughs) He says, no one ever wants to be the early adopters of a big shift whose outcome is not yet certain. They want to see which way the wind is going to blow. The holdup was not the tribes arguing who gets to go first. The the holdup was the tribes arguing about who has to go first. And they argued and they argued. And as they argued, right, you can just imagine they're arguing like, why should we have to be the one? What did we do to, you know, have to make the first sacrifice to take this risk? What what if we're wrong? I don't want to be wrong in front of everybody. I'll be embarrassed. Then I'll just be wet. (laughs) Right? What if nothing happens? People might make fun of me. You can imagine that anybody at the front edge of a movement for changing, for social change, might have all of these fears and more. What if they call me names? What if it's dangerous? What if it doesn't work? And so as they are bickering, one old man, Nachshon ben Aminadav, steps into the water. You got the scene of that earlier. And when he does this, his faith renews Moses' strength, and Moses is able to raise his staff, and God parts the sea. So because of Nachshon's faith and his bravery and the contagiousness, the domino effect of that courage, all the Israelites were then able to follow him into the water and walk to freedom. We tend to gloss over or, or just forget to remember the stories of the everyday people often whose names we don't even know, who made small but brave choices and committed to them early on, early on in the process, long before there were the names of the people whose, whose names and whose charismatic presence we recognize. And remember, we, when we think about who moved the needle or how did the needle move in history, we tend to think of the big names. Moses, Abraham Lincoln, Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, or... Did you just say Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Darth Vader. Vader. Thank you. Yes. History can also, the needle on history can move the other direction too. It's true. Thank you, Michael. Or we remember big name policies, you know, the 19th Amendment, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. And don't get me wrong, thank God for all of those big, big moments and charismatic leaders. But it's not actually about those charismatic, memorable leaders. It's about the people who make the cause their own, right? The hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of individuals who are the followers, who make the cause their own and then take steps that nobody asked them to make but that they know someone needs to start taking and that's what it actually takes to transform the world. That's why, in answer to Michael Pollan's question, why bother, what each one of us does matters profoundly We can't leave these things only up to people in positions of authority and power. We have to bother. We have to take matters into our own small, limited hands in order for the seas to part, which is what Julius was saying earlier. So Rabbi Shai Held, who is a modern American commentary writer, says, Even in an age in which God splits seas, the Torah places tremendous emphasis on human beings taking the first step. God will not save the Israelites until they're willing to go forward into the unknown. The sea will not split until someone is intrepid enough to proceed. It's only once the Israelites themselves act boldly and dauntlessly that God's miracle sets in. In order for the Israelites to leave slavery behind, existentially and politically, they have to learn to take fate into their own hands and thereby rediscover their capacity to act and make an impact upon the world and their lives in it. And I think about and I think about your example of climate change and how so many of us are just hoping that some smart person invents a big carbon sucker, you know, or just has some brilliant invention that will take the responsibility off of all of us and all the corporations that are polluting this world to fix it like God's splitting the sea. Wouldn't that be great? You know, basically a miracle from heaven. But Rabbi Held writes, God no longer splits seas. God's presence is more subtle and mysterious. Therefore, what was necessary in biblical times is all the more urgent today. People are called upon to refuse passivity as a religious posture. This is the lesson. This is why bother, because the Torah says we must refuse passivity as a religious posture. So I want to acknowledge that it is Shabbat And one day out of seven, the tradition actually wants you to take a day off, to be passive as a religious posture. I I actually want to say, in contrast to Rabbi Held, there's a ratio. One out of seven, you get to be passive. Six out of seven, you work your tuchus off right? Analyzing and aspiring and healing and building and arguing and strategizing and working and creating all the things we take a break from one day a week to replenish our stores, to breathe, to actually see and appreciate and love the world as it is. But six days a week, we imagine and we work for the world as it could be. That's how it works. We refuse passivity as a spiritual posture, which of course is where Reb Michael Pollan arrives at the end of his piece, so he goes through all the reasons why a person could justifiably, what could reasonably justify not bothering. And then he nonetheless advises, bother. Please bother. He writes, sometimes you have to act as if acting will make a difference, even though you can't prove that it will. That, after, that after all, was precisely what happened in communist Czechoslovakia and Poland when a handful of individuals like Vaclav Havel and Adam Michnik resolved that they would simply conduct their lives from prison as if they lived in a free society. And that improbable bet created a tiny space of liberty that in time expanded to take in and then help take down the whole of the Eastern Bloc. He wrote this in 2008. So I feel like things look a little bit different now, but still... So here we are going on Tubishvat, the holiday celebrating the trees and our honoring of nature. What might be a comparable bet, he asks, that the individual might make in the case of the environmental crisis? So Pollan suggests finding one thing to do in your life that isn't about spending money or voting, but is real and particular and symbolic and also will offer its own rewards. So some of his ideas you could probably guess Maybe you decide to give up meat all or partially, an act that would reduce your carbon footprint as much as a whole quarter. Or you try to observe the Sabbath, he says, as a not-observant Jew. But because for one day, no shopping, no driving, no electronics is actually a way to reduce our footprint on the world, to live a little more lightly on planet Earth. Imagine if Jews all over the world really did this. People all over the world one day a week lived more lightly on the Earth. And then realize that we could actually do that probably more often and in more days and ways and places. Rabbi Stephen interviewed a community member, Hans Detweiler, um, who's a very active local environmentalist um, on a recent Mishkan podcast. You can go listen to it. His advice was to have your next major appliance be the electric or more environmentally friendly version of it. So if you're going to buy a car, this time don't buy one that perpetuates the gas and coal economy. Like, we now are at a point where you won't even be an early adopter. You will be somebody who's joining a movement that looks like the future. And it's not fully built yet. And that's the thing. That's what makes you a nachshon, if you make a choice like this. And then I'm, of course, thinking about what Julius is doing for his bar mitzvah project. You could plant a tree in an urban area in need of green space and in need of the environmental and social benefits that comes with trees. The idea is that if enough people... Do all of these little things, it actually does change the landscape. It actually does change the air, but more important, it changes the culture, and it creates a moral imagination around what is possible, and it creates political plausibility. I was just listening to uh, the the story of the Colorado River. I don't know how how much you know about this river. Like we have Lake Michigan, it's something we don't even think about, but there is a river upon whose water seven different states rely. And that river is disappearing. And in those states are some of the absolute most magnificent golf courses. And nobody wants to be the first state to change the character. What people love about the state, because golf is great. I mean, I don't, whatever. It's, golf is okay for me. But there are people who really love golf. You know what I'm saying? And love lawns. And that like the idea of changing. Basic elements of lifestyle feels impossible. But if all the neighbors did it, and if all of the states decided it was important enough to save our only source of water, um, it might just be possible. But the political plausibility just feels so remote that everybody says, eh, why me? Why should I have to make the sacrifice? So I want to end, I want to pivot a little bit with some Nachshons whose names I don't have, but who step into the water Forever Changed America. And this is a little bit of a pivot away from the environment and toward reminding us that every problem that seems insurmountable, there is a small action that if enough people do and commit to, come what may, it can change the world. And so this also in honor of Black History Month. On February 1st, February 1st 1960, almost exactly 63 years ago to the day, four college freshmen sat down at the Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. Four college freshmen. And of course they were refused service because they were black. And then when they would not leave, they closed the lunch counter for the day. And when they came back the next day, they brought friends and they didn't serve them. And the next day and the next day and the next day after that, and they just sat there silently and over the next two weeks, sit-ins spread to 15 cities in five southern states. And there was violence against these people, just sitting, waiting to be served. But the sudden, the, sudden, the idea that taking personal initiative, in whatever small way you could, took hold, and over the next 12 months, more than 50,000 people participated in one demonstration of a kind or another in over 100 cities 3600 people were put in jail people were beaten people had dogs sent on them but by the end of 1960 not one year later not one year later lunch counters were open in greensboro alabama or greensboro north carolina and many other places but more important for for integrated lunch but more importantly the strategy of coordinated, visible, persistent, nonviolent, on the ground action by a normal, everyday people had taken hold and was now beginning to transform the face of America. Thank God. It is easier, by the way, not to bother. It's easier to not bother. Most people will not bother, or they won't until the reality outside of us becomes so uncomfortable that they have to. We'll argue. We'll argue at the dinner table, we'll argue over coffee, people will argue in the halls of power while the clock is ticking, and while the Egyptian army is barreling down behind us. But passivity is not a religious posture sitting at a lunch counter or planting a tree or composting your banana peels or deciding to start walking or biking on Shabbat more often or take your pick like talk about it over lunch what is one small thing that you could do a teeny step in the direction of a much bigger change that you hope the world makes let it start with you and we might just change the world
0: Shabbat Replay is a production of Mishkan Chicago. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kalman Strauss. You can always see where and when our next service will be on our calendar. There's a link in the show notes. And if you appreciated the program, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you've heard it before, but it really does help. On behalf of Team Mishkan, thank you for listening.